2. You know, he was a contentious prophet, wasn't he? he God, had to, God had a bone to pick with Israel. And Israel had a bone to pick with God. And several times you read the phrase, but you say, or but you ask. It runs through the book. I mean, it starts right back in chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say. And then again in chapter 1, verse 6, a son honors his father, a servant his mother. If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, and it just keeps coming on, but you say, it goes through the whole book, even beyond where we're reading today, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, but you say, and 17, but you say, and over in chapter 3, they're still, but you say. They keep on arguing with God. It's like a continued conflict and questioning and arguing of a teenager with its parents. There's always the comeback, there's always the answer, but you say this, but you say that, but you say, and it's pushing the boundaries all the way through the book of Malachi. Now this lunchtime we're dealing with just chapter 1 verse 6 through to chapter 2 verse 9 and the area of the priests and the sacrifices that the priests offered. It starts off with the subject of honour and respect, the kind of honour and respect that a master or a father deserves. A son honours his father, a servant his master in chapter 1 verse 6 there. But while they call God father, while they call God master, they don't honour him. They give him no respect, rather they treat his name with contempt. Now, what's in the name you may ask? Uh, Along with Juliet, of course, uh, rose by any other name will smell as sweet or along with generations of parents who have told their children that sticks and stones may break your bones but names will ever hurt you, which is one of the great fibs that parents tell because actually names do hurt you and bones generally mend. But there are souls who have been hurt by the names they were called as children who have never recovered from the name calling that they've endured. A name can hurt for a name actually matters. A name is more than just a sound. It's more than just a kind of random noise. Your name is very important to you. If somebody doesn't know your name, you'd think they don't know you. In fact, if they don't remember your name, you feel like they don't care for you. It's not that often, quite often it's just they don't have a good memory. But it's a sense of if I know you by name, then I know you. If I don't know your name, do I really know you? I'm embarrassed about using this illustration. As some of you I see week by week, but of course we don't in and out and I never get to know your name do my name's Philip I like you to know my name anyway even if I don't know yours which I'm sorry about and have you noticed how irritated people get when you misspell their name I mean as if it matters I have two L's in my Philip I like two L's in my Philip my parents gave me two I don't know why they gave me two L's but they did and when people spell it with one L I usually kind of correct it with another L because It's not me if it's only got one L, it's some other strange person of a Greek origin. It's important that your name is not slandered, your name is not libeled, denigrated or dishonoured, for your name is your reputation, it's your credibility, it's your honour, it's your self-respect. And it's important not to treat God's name with contempt. 
For when you do that, you are treating God with contempt. That's why in the Ten Commandments, you mustn't blaspheme the name of the Lord your God. It's more than just using his name carelessly as a kind of swear word, as a slang word, when your vocabulary fails you and your emotions overcome you. It, it's taking your, his name upon yourself, calling yourself by, one, by, by him and by his name, to say, I'm a, the nation of Yahweh, I'm one of the people of Yahweh, or in our terms, I'm a Jesus person, I'm a Christian, and then to live in such a way that brings discredit upon the Lord Jesus Christ, or in their case, upon Yahweh. For Israel was Yahweh's people, but they didn't live the way Yahweh wanted them to. They didn't show his character to the world by their manner of life. They didn't bring him credit by the way they lived. They dishonoured the name by the way they lived, and they brought contempt upon him. Indeed, the nations laughed at Yahweh when they saw the destruction of Judah. What kind of God is that Yahweh? Look at his people and look what's happened to them. He's not much to worry about. So in one six, we read the charge that runs through this whole passage. The priests have despised the name of God. And they ask, how? How have we despised your name? And the answer is, because you've offered polluted food on God's altar. Well, which leads to another question, which is a slightly different question they ask then, how have we polluted you? And the answer is given in verse 7, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised, by saying it's okay to put on the Lord's table, to offer up to God on the altar anything you like. It doesn't matter. God doesn't matter. He doesn't care what you offer up. It's okay. For they brought not the best, pure, healthy animals, but the blind, the lame, and the sick animals. The ones that they could easily spare, the ones they were going to put down anyway, frankly. And you bring that, and that's your sacrifice to God. They've broken the rules and offended the rule maker. By breaking the rules of sacrifice, they are doing and have done evil, he says. So Malachi challenges them to make such a gift to their governors, to the world's governors. Will the human ruler accept second-rate gifts and offerings? You know, you, the queen turns up and we give her a, a nice china cup and saucer, which has got a big chip in it. I mean, we, we're going to throw it out anyway, you know. We may as well give it to the gracious sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth II. I mean, she's never had a chipped cup before, has she? This is something unique that she will have, and it doesn't cost us too much. Will you seek favour from the ruler of the land by giving second-rate gifts, and yet you expect God to show you favour? Here is the nature of sin. It's not so much breaking the rules as what breaking the rules imply, that you defy the rule maker. Sin's always like this. You take telling a lie. Politicians tell us they can't run the country without telling a lie. But God hates lying lips. They are an abomination unto him, he says. So when I tell a lie, sure, I break the rule that I shouldn't tell lies, but it's more than that. It speaks of my attitude towards God. 
I'm saying, God, butt out of it. You don't know how to run social life here in Australia. You don't know how to run the country. You don't know how to run my life. I know the best way to do it. It's be economical with the truth in this situation. If you were in my situation, you'd tell a lie now. You're not in my situation, so butt out. It's my life to run my way the way I want to. Now, I'm not articulating that in my head usually. I'm just telling the lie. But that is the implication of what I'm doing. When I'm offering up, when the priests in Malachi's times were offering up second-rate offerings to God, what was it saying about their attitude to God? It was more than just that they were breaking the rules of what to sacrifice and what not to sacrifice. They were defying the rule maker who said he would only accept the best. And in that defiance, of course, I'm showing contempt towards God, profaning his name. Pray, name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and won't live the way the Lord Jesus Christ wants me to live. I call him my Lord, but I live under the rule of me. And the priests were profaning the Lord's table with their second best offerings. Look to verse 12 of chapter 1. But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. So they give permission for the despised things to be used upon it. Verse 13, but you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what may be taken by violence or is lame or sick or this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept from your, from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who, is ma- who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Friends, it's not all that very difficult to see that in our context or in our lives, is it? We don't have the altar of the sacrificial system of Israel. But we have the Lord Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice was not a broken-down second-hand one that would have been killed anyway. His sacrifice was of himself, the perfect Son of God, indeed God the Son, And in response to God's mercy that we receive through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to our Heavenly Father. Well, just as the priests in Malachi's day would go through the ritual of sacrifice, but in reality only offer up leftover bits of rubbish to God, so we also can go through the perfunctory religion the pretense of sacrifice, but in reality only offering up the leftover bits of our life that, well, we wouldn't have known what to do with anyway. I mean, going to church can become for many people, many people who want to profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, a kind of default option to do when you've got nothing else better to do. I mean, when there's a family barbecue, when there's a football match, when there's, a, when there's a, an outing, when there's a party, when I just feel a little tickle at the back of my throat and I might be getting a cold, whenever anything else is around, I will do it. But if there's absolutely nothing else to do, well, I may as well go to church today. There, you see, is offering the fag ends of your life, isn't it? But it's not just church going. It's so easy to read the Bible without ever thinking of what it's meaning, let alone putting it into effect in our lives. 
being hearers of the word, not doers of the word, as the Apostle James says. It's so easy to give the fag ends of our wealth to Christian causes rather than planning how best to use our money for the cause of Christ. We just put our hand in the fob pocket and look for some loose change when the, when the plate, when the bowl, when the box is rattled under our nose. But if there's no box, there's no plate, well, we go on living with our money for ourselves. Anyway, back to Malachi. For even pagans are to know and honour the name of God. For as verse 14 says, He is a great God, and his name will be feared among the nations. So his desire in verse 10 is that the doors of the temple would be shut, that the sacrifices would actually stop. It's better to have no sacrifices than the contemptible pollution and defilement that they are performing. God has no pleasure in these phony sacrifices of Israel's corrupt priests. For as it says in verse 11, God's name is going to be great among the nations from all over the world, from east as far as you go, from west as far as you go. God's name will be known and will be known as great. And more than that, even the pagans will be offering up pure sacrifices that will be to and in his name. They will worship me acceptably. What an insult to Judah. Judah that was God's people in God's land, around God's city, Jerusalem, with God's temple in the centre of Jerusalem. They, the true people of God, will be rejected. While the pagans all over the world, their worship of God will be accepted. One wonders, in reading Malachi, how did he imagine this was going to happen? When did he imagine it would happen? Or was he just using a rhetorical device and never actually thought such a thing were possible? But before we answer those kinds of questions, notice that God was cursing the blessings of the priests. I mean, for many people, a good question is, what's the use of a priest? What do priests do anyway? Well, they're mediators. They're go-betweens, drawing near to God and to the people, doing the kind of shuttle diplomacy between the two. God is angry with sin and sinners, and people are full of sin. And so they offer up sacrifices on behalf of the people so that they could draw near to God on behalf of the people. Now, in the New Testament... It's Jesus who is the priest for Christians, for he is the one true mediator between God and the man and mankind. And so all Christians are now priests, for we all have access to God through the one Lord Jesus Christ, and have all become the nation of priests that Israel was supposed to be. Ministers in the church, ministers in the New Testament, are not priests, nor are they ever called priests. There's all kinds of words they're used to describe them. Apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors, teachers, elders, uh, bishops. There's all kinds of terms that are used of them, deacons, but never priest. Because ministers don't function as mediators between God and mankind. I am a minister of the gospel and ordained, but I don't stand between you and God. You can't get to God through me. 
I am no closer to God than you are. If you are in Christ Jesus, you can't get closer to God than you are. You are already sitting at the right hand of God, for that is where the Lord Jesus Christ is. If you are in Christ, you are there already. It's not that you don't need me. You can't use me. I'm not available to you to get closer to God. Then it's a blasphemy against the Lord Jesus Christ to think that you need a go-between between God and yourself. For you have the Lord Jesus Christ if you're in Christ Jesus. However, the priests in the Old Testament have another function as well that is listed for us here. They also were to be the teachers. Levi was the father of the priests. The tribe of Levi was where all the priests came from. And he is described in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, if you'd look there with me. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. God's covenant, God's contract with the tribe of Levi and with the family was that they were to be God's priests, to fear God, to stand in awe of God and of his name, to honour his name. Back in verse 2 of of chapter 2, that that is what they do. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honour to my name, says the Lord of hosts. That is what they were to do. And so they were to give true instruction in the law. They were to walk in peace and righteousness and they were to turn many people from their sinfulness. Here is the answer to the question of how did the priests fail? They failed because They ought to have preserved knowledge in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, but they have turned aside from that way. And in their turning aside from the knowledge of God and his law, they have caused many to stumble by their instruction, so violating the covenant with Levi. So there are two great errors that they are doing. One is that they are teaching people that it doesn't matter what you sacrifice on the altar that God's standards are really fairly low. He'll accept anything that you care to bring along. But it's also, not only they were doing the sacrifices, but they were teaching the people. It's a combination of these two things that they were to be involved in. False teaching is the greatest threat to revealed religion. Coming from the priests, from the family of Levi, from the very heart of orthodox teaching, from the ones who are the guardians of the instruction... It's a dreadful abuse and a corruption of the whole nation. But when they show partiality, as it's spoken of in verse 9, picking and choosing the bits of the law that will suit their favourites in the cases that come before them, then God will bring them out down, make them despised and abased before the whole nation. So look back to this passage and hear what God will do. For he's warned in chapter 2, verse 1, and now this priest, now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart and honour my name, says the Lord, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. 
Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung upon your faces, the dung of your offences, and you shall be taken away with it. It's pretty extreme language, isn't it? Very strong and stark. But what else will fit for profane and defiled priests, but that they themselves are profaned and defiled? It's a judgment that fits the crime, the punishment that fits the crime. You are defiling me when your job is to make me holy. And so you will be defiled in the face of all people. And their blessings, for that's what the priests are doing, blessing people, they'll be turned to curses. They are perverted and so their ministry will be perverted. Instead of being holy and clean, they'll be corrupt and filthy. And your descendants, because priesthood was passed down through the descendants, the sons of Levi, who are taken up to the priesthood, well, they too will be affected by God's judgment on this dreadful priesthood, rebuking them instead of blessing them. So in chapter 2, verse 9, we see the priests will be despised and abased instead of being honoured. Well, in summary then, Malachi 1 and 2, you see that they would not honour God's name. They wouldn't hold it out as honourable before the nations. So they will not be honoured, even in their own nation. And the nations that they were supposed to bring credit to God in, the nations will offer purer and more acceptable offerings than the priests of Jerusalem and Judah. There are three things then that Malachi chapters 1 and 2 tells us about real religion that I draw to your attention in these last few minutes today. Firstly, it indicates and illustrates the nature of sin. That is, defying and defiling, holding in contempt God himself. Sin is always anti-God. It's not just immorality, it is opposed to God immorality. It's ignoring, disobeying, resenting, rebelling against God. The Bible is ultimately about relationships with a personal God who has created the world. And sin is about the broken relationship that happens when the creatures reject their creator. That is, sin is when people just don't care about their maker, They don't care about their owner, their ruler, their saviour, their lord, their judge. They just don't care about God and what he thinks of them. I love the city of Sydney. But the city of Sydney just doesn't care about God. It is the city of sin, if you've ever seen one. Malachi chapter 1 and 2 illustrates the priests in their sinfulness and so illustrates the nature of sin. You can be so close into God as being one of the priests of Judah in Jerusalem's temple and still be rebelling against God. Which therefore brings the second thing that Malachi 1 and 2 illustrates, that is the failure of religion. I mean, here is the true, blue, authentic, God-created religion. And many people 
make claims to be the authentic, real deal religion of God. The Roman Catholic Church wants to be the Catholic Church, that is, the one and only universal church, all the others being false churches. The Orthodox Church want to be the one true right church. The Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, the Sydney Church of Christ, there's any number of people who will claim to be the one But none have better qualifications for their claim than Israel, whose temple fulfilled God's instructions, whose priesthood God had chosen, whose sacrificial system God had commanded at Mount Sinai when he gave the law to Moses. Here were God's chosen people, his holy nation, his nation of priests, Here were the priests of God's nation of priests. You can't get a more authentic religion than this group of people. If their claims aren't right, nobody else's claims come within Kui. Yet look at God's attitude to them and their religious observance. When they broke the law and taught error, they were not his priests. Their blessings were to become curses Shut the door, it'd be better not to have the door open at all than to go on like this. Pagan sacrifices will be more acceptable to this. We humans never seem to understand the lesson that you cannot institutionalise truth. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, page 1019. 1019. See the disciples making the same mistake. Mark 9, page 1019, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Verse 39, but Jesus said, Don't stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. The disciples have just failed to exercise in Mark 9. Here's a man who can do it. So they say, You stop it, you're not one of us. If he was one of us, they would have failed as well. Or come over a page or two to chapter 11, chapter 11, page 1022, 1000 and, no, that doesn't sound, yes, 1022, and pick it up, verse 27. And they came, one, Mark 11:27. and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Well, who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, well, if we say from heaven, he'll say then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, well, they're afraid of the people for all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That's a wonderful little play there, isn't it, that happened between Jesus and the leaders. See, where does the authority of the prophet come from? God. Not from the Pharisees, not from the Sadducees, not from the priests, not from the scribes, not from the temple. It comes from God. He either speaks the truth or he doesn't speak the truth. God's truth is wherever it is preached, by whomever it is preached. Out of the mouths of babes and infants come the praises of God. 
which brings us to the third of the Malachi lessons about real religion. That is the worship of pagans. Because God was not going to accept the false and contemptuous worship of Judah, but he was going to accept true and pure worship of the nations, the pagans. When and how would this be? Well, not in their paganism, for that was neither true nor pure. But because he was talking about honouring his name, not the name of Moloch or Baal, he was the worship that would reflect his character, his reputation and his morality, which is hardly Canaanite or fertility religions. So when and how would the non-Jews ever come to worship God? Well, once more, we see Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, fulfilling the Old Testament in ways that people never expected. For in his death and resurrection, forgiveness and repentance has been proclaimed not just to Judah but to the ends of the earth, from east to west and all the nations, so that Jews and Gentiles together can call upon God, can worship Yahweh. Real religion lies in the real sacrifice that the temple only foreshadowed. Real religion lies in the death and resurrection of Jesus, restoring and reconciling God to humanity and humanity to God. It's the worship in the spirit and truth that is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where true worship is found. In a place like Sydney, at the ends of the earth, that hadn't even been considered by the Bible writers. A group of people meet at lunchtime to hear the word of God and to remember the Lord Jesus Christ, to pray to him and if they're true worshippers, to leave living by what they heard in God's word. Which in this case means giving our all to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and pray for you for everything you do for us especially for the gift of your Son, that by his sacrifice, we who are not your ancient chosen people may indeed worship you in spirit and in truth as we present our bodies to you as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. We pray that each one of us may know you as our Father and honour you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.